days fly by, but uh, in the Christian church calendar, today begins a new year. As Kay mentioned last week when she preached, last Sunday was Christ the King Sunday, which caps off the, the Christian year cycle. But today begins the new cycle. It begins the, the new season and the season that we call Advent. Advent means coming or arrival, um, and it's a time where we remember and we reflect upon and we look forward to the birth of Christ. And really, in ways, Advent uh, draws us to consider three perspectives. So the first being it calls us to remember an event in history, 2,000 years ago, a little over 2,000 years ago, when Christ entered the world. We remember and celebrate that event. This event where, as John puts it in his gospel, when the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We talk about God incarnate. In those words, we are describing Jesus being God in flesh. And so Advent calls us to remember what God has done for us in time and history to redeem us and to deliver us from our spiritual bondage to sin and its consequences. So that's, that's the first perspective of Advent. But there's a second perspective, and it's not only the historical relevance of something that happened 2,000 years ago at the time of, the, at, you know, the time of when Christ was born, but it also has relevance here and now. It has relevance for us today. And so we reflect on the reality of Christ's birth of Emmanuel, God with us, and how that has relevance to us in the church today as Christ's Spirit is with us and continues to dwell with his church. And the last perspective, the the third point of this, is it also points us forward to when Christ will come again. And when we when we share in the Lord's Supper together, the element of cups over there, uh, as we will next Sunday, the, the very last line of the words of institution, I say that for as long as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim Christ's life, death, and resurrection until he comes again. Each time we celebrate communion, we are in a way anticipating this, this kind of advent of Christ coming again. Well, as we journey through these next four weeks, we'll be focusing on the Advent uh, themes of hope. We'll focus on hope today, but then we'll focus on peace, joy, and love. And we're going to use the book of Isaiah as our guide as we go. And I feel like I should kind of say that we're just spending four weeks looking at this. So this isn't going to be an exhaustive study of the book of Isaiah. It's an incredible book. It deserves, you know, it merits its own study, but in just four short weeks, we're going to use it as a guide, but we're going to use it as as a way to talk about these themes of Advent and draw from Isaiah uh, some meaningful reflection for us today. So as we turn our attention to God's word, let us pray. Almighty God, you are the great giver of life and the source of truth and righteousness. We find ourselves in the midst of a world filled with brokenness. And our culture is one that chooses to be self-serving, self-promoting, and self-centered. 
Lord, we live in an unforgiving place filled with unforgiving people, even people, uh, even sinners like us. So we pray earnestly, Lord, that your light would shine in the darkness. May the light of your spirit shine as the dawn of a new day in our hearts and in the hearts of those in this world. We pray, awaken us to a right knowledge of your holiness and stir within us a deeper longing for your truth and righteousness. O Lord, you alone are are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so I can't help but to begin with some some context to set the stage. I'm a big context person. I think it's important. So first, kind of who is this Isaiah character, this Isaiah the prophet? Um, Well, the life of Isaiah can be dated. That's, that's one of the, the beautiful things about the Bible is we can uh, piece things together and we can know when in history people lived. And the very first verse of the book of Isaiah gives us some great information. It says, The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So what does that do to help us? Well, it lists four specific kings that ruled in Judah, and Isaiah ministered, prophesied throughout those reigns. And so from that information, and we know pretty close when these kings lived, we can deduce that Isaiah lived sometime between 767 BC and 687 BC. That's a pretty long span of of time. But we can also dig a little deeper and kind of get a little more specific with it. That first king, Uzziah, uh, we know something else about him. And Isaiah helps us in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah. Uh, Chapter 6, it's an interesting passage. It's where Isaiah goes into the temple and he has a vision of the Lord and all the Lord's glory. And it's Isaiah's commissioning to go and be a prophet of God and to prophesy to the people. Well, Isaiah 6 verse 1 tells us that that event of when Isaiah was commissioned to go forth happened in the year that King Uzziah died, which would have been about 740 B.C. So just kind of putting this all together, I have a point for this. Isaiah's prophetic ministry likely spanned from about 740 B.C., when the year that King Uzziah died, to about 687 B.C. That's 53 years that's more than enough time to, you know, draw some retirement from being a prophet. I don't think they had retirement packages back then. But that's, that's a long haul. That's a long time in ministry, 53 years. He had a long ministry in the southern kingdom of Judah. But that ministry was not, not an easy one by any means. So today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 8. That's where we're going to look at a few verses there, verses 11 through 17. Um, but I want to draw in some more context. We've got to bring some more context into this. Because Isaiah is a long book. It's, it's 66 chapters. And as we just said, Isaiah ministered for something like 53 years. That's a long time. A lot can happen in that span of time and in 66 Chapters, So we need to narrow our focus. What do we know about what's happening right in chapter 8? These words that we're going to be reading. Well, this section occurs in a very, very difficult time. 
In these verses, Ahaz is the king of Judah. And just, just a little bit about Ahaz. I don't know if you know anything about Ahaz, but basically Ahaz equals not good. All right, he's not a good king of Judah. That's, that's putting it lightly. Uh, Josiah, who we talked about kind of in our stewardship, he was a pretty good king. Hezekiah, pretty good king. Ahaz, not a good king. All right, so I'm just going to let Second uh, Kings 16 speak for itself about King Ahaz. So here's what kind of king he was. It says, And Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. That's right. He sacrificed one of his own children as an offering. According to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And it just kind of goes on. Like he he doesn't get any better. Um, So that's King Ahaz. That's the the environment in which Isaiah is called to do his prophetic role. But there's other things going on too. Remember, just like our world today is complex, right? There's, there's things happening around the globe that have impacts uh, here and now. Same thing back then. So not only was it just their kingdom, but they were surround The big uh, threat to the nation of Judah and Israel was the nation of Assyria, Assyria was a pretty ruthless nation. They weren't known for, for being uh, uh, kind or courteous. Uh, they were known for destruction and, and death and just bad things. And one of the things that King Ahaz did is he made a deal with the king of Assyria, whose name was Tiglath-Pileser III. That's a cool name, right? Tiglath-Pileser III. He made a deal with the king of Assyria, Assyria that essentially made Judah, their nation, a vassal kingdom to the Assyrian Empire. He essentially made Judah a subject to the Assyrian control. So kind of summarizing, uh, the king of Judah, Ahaz, bad. The nation of Assyria, bad. You know, they're the overlord superpowers. The nation of Judah, fallen into pagan worship and idolatry and injustice practices bad what I'm trying to get at is Isaiah was called in the midst of a difficult and dark and threatening time but in that time Isaiah was called to be a faithful servant of God so what did that look like Let's read now at uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 17. So have all that background with you in the back of your mind and hear these words. For the Lord spoke thus to me while his hand was strong upon me. He warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what it fears or be in dread. But the Lord of hosts... Him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will become a sanctuary, a stone one strikes against for both houses of Israel. He will become a rock one stumbles over, a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. 
bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kind of some heavy things in that, that passage, but it gets at the, the severity of what's going on in the nation. Everything that, that's going on around them and within the nation, it's speaking to that context. You know, there's something that I, I think doesn't change throughout all of human history, and that's that we as humans want to be part of a crowd. We're made to be social creatures. We want to be a part of a group. We want to be included. We want to have, you know, people. We want to have a group. And um, one thing that kind of... Uh, exemplifies this uh, not always in the greatest of ways is fads right y'all know what fads are right all right so I looked up a a few silly fads uh from the past couple of decades and came up with a number so the 70s ish you know you may have seen some people walking around anyone I won't make you raise your hand okay I won't make you confess but some of you in this congregation may have been the model for this picture uh, so we've got like the bell bottoms, the hair, right? Okay, what next fad? All right, uh, what decade was this from? Anyone? Yeah, everyone knows. You know, the kind of the fad of the AV, big, big hair. And also, anyone have uh, one of these growing up? Cabbage Patch dolls, those were big, I think, in the 80s. Uh, when I was, I remember junior high, I had to have a pair of these. Doc Martens, like those were the things. If you didn't have Doc Martens, you just weren't cool. So you had to get a pair of Doc Martens. Uh, and then there was the Beanie Baby craze. Uh, y'all know how crazy that got. Um, and then one that uh, I never participated, well, I didn't participate in that one either. But the next one, Heelys. Do y'all know this one? The shoes with the, the wheels on the bottom. Yeah, for a while it seemed like every kid had, one, had them. And I can ride a, two wheels on a bike. I cannot skateboard. I cannot do anything like this. I never had those. But... I thought they were kind of annoying. But anyway, so if you had those, no offense. But uh, so that was a fad. And then, you know, I'm not going to pick on just the older generations. As, as we get into the 2000s, uh, remember planking when that was a thing? It was just awkward. Like kind of annoying. Like people, you're just like walking down the sidewalk and somebody stretched out on a bench or a basketball goal. And just like, what are you doing? So there was planking. Um, and then the next one, uh, parkouring. Anybody remember parkouring? I mean, it's still a thing, but that's from the office. But uh, uh, yeah, that one just sounded dangerous. Um, yeah. And then uh, this next one got pretty big for a little while, T-bowing. Y'all know T-bowing, right? So it got to be a thing. No, no one's saying anything to that one. I thought that would get some comments. But obviously he has good intentions doing it, but then the culture just kind of took it, and they were T-bowing and everywhere. So... There was that. And then things kind of went really downhill after this. Uh, the Harlem Shake. I don't know if, uh, if you don't know what the Harlem Shake, in, shake is, good. Like, don't, don't Google it. Don't look it up. It was really weird. Um, that's one scene from that. Uh, and then there was all these, like, challenges that started coming up. One was the, the mannequin. Oh, I didn't have a picture of the mannequin challenge. It... Well, I was looking up pictures, but all the pictures were just people standing still. It didn't really seem like it'd make sense on a screen because it was just a picture of people. But there was like the mannequin challenge and then the ice bucket challenge. So that got pretty big for a little while. So, you know, there, there's these fads 
And we get wrapped up in them and, you know, we want to be included. We want to be in on whatever's going on at that time. It's just kind of something, I think, about us. And you might think, you know, I never got into those fads. But I think as people, we have a, a, a social conditioning, you know, something in our DNA that makes us want to, to mold ourselves into some sort of group, to be included into some sort of group. It can influence how we dress. It can influence where we live or what vehicles we drive or how we talk. Uh, does anybody, like, talk differently to different people? Um, Jessica knows, like, if I'm on the call with uh, my mom or if I'm on the call, you know, something about the church or if I'm on the call with my best friend growing up because, you know, talking to my best friend growing up just is utter nonsense and just ridiculous and obviously I don't talk like that all the time. But she can just, just by listening to my voice and just kind of the, how I'm inflecting my voice and things like that, she can kind of tell sometimes who I'm talking to. I think we do that sometimes in different groups. You know, we kind of mold ourselves in little ways because we, we find a, a place there. Okay, so all those things are, you know, just kind of silly, fairly innocuous. But it's really easy to be dragged down by others in negative ways, in really ways that are sometimes even harmful. Um, and sometimes, maybe even most of the time, I don't know, I'd say that we don't even realize it when it begins to happen. You know, maybe we're just around someone, uh, a friend, that starts talking negatively about someone else, and then we just kind of add in a few comments of our own. Or maybe someone, you know, we're standing in line at the store and somebody behind us is complaining about how long it's taken and they only have two cashiers up there and the, all these lines and, you know, we kind of join in on that too. Maybe it starts with something like that. Or somebody's rude to us and we adopt the same attitude back to them. Somebody cuts us off on the road and we want to, you know, get right on their bumper and, you know, show them what's up. I don't know what we're doing when we do that because if we get in a wreck, that's not good. But we... We allow the influence of others sometimes to drag us down, and sometimes it happens just so subtly. We don't, we don't think about it, but we can also get dragged down or dragged away in other ways. We can get sucked into the, just the competitive nature of our society. You know, we can become so focused on success or, you know, keeping up with the Joneses or, you know, focusing on our kids making the varsity team or uh, being top 5% in the class or getting the lead in the play or class president or whatever, you know, it might be. Or we get dragged down by getting sucked into the distractions of our world that we don't make time for God because it's not a priority for everyone else. There's so much stuff to do, so many things to watch, so many things that vie for our attention and our time that we just kind of allow ourselves to get sucked into it. It's easy to take the path of the current culture, to kind of go along, to ride that current, to go with the flow, to jump on the bandwagon. But friends, we're called to be holy. That word holy means to be set apart, meaning there's supposed to be something different about us. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
Those are pretty heavy words. We are to be holy unto God, and Christ is to be our focus. This call of discipleship, to really pursue Christ, to die to self, is a big call because it goes against the grain of our culture. Holiness, when we pursue holiness, it's often in tension with the world around us. But that's the very nature of what holiness is. It draws us out. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to sound different when we talk to one another. The words that we say about one another, we're supposed to act different, behave different. We're supposed to model a better way, not get sucked into, you know, just what's normal. We're supposed to model a better way to be representatives of God, to be the body of Christ to the world. We're supposed to be the light to the world. There's enough darkness out there. We are called to be the light. Light takes energy. Have you ever tried to stand up in a, in a river, you know, that's got really a, a current? It's hard. Water is powerful. We know how dangerous flash floods can be. What is it, just like one or two foot of moving water can move a car? You hear year after year uh, of people being swept away in flash floods because they don't realize the power of the current that they're in. Friends, culture can be a powerful current. We see it on social media. We see it on the news. We see it on things like that. Sometimes it can be a powerful current for good, but oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes, like a flash flood, it's destructive. That's the sort of times that Isaiah found himself in. It was those difficult and troubling times in the midst of the uncertain and the turmoil and the darkness. It says that God's hand was strong upon Isaiah. Sometimes that darkness feels like it wraps in around us, but There's truth in that God is always with us. God will never leave us or forsake us. And it says that God warned Isaiah not to walk in the way of this people. There's so many people just going with the flow of this culture and being led astray. Don't be like that. Don't walk in this way. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Focus on the Lord and what God wants for your life. Let him be your fear. So the message was, don't fear them, fear him. And Isaiah obeyed, and he put his feet down into that flowing stream and that current of his culture because he understood that that current was just leading toward a waterfall of destruction. He, He knew the better way, and he sought the will of God. Culture ought not to govern us but the word and will of God should. The book of Isaiah, it's it's quoted often in the New Testament, at least 65 times in the New Testament, the book of Isaiah is is quoted. And I want to turn our attention to one of those occurrences because it it pulls from uh, Isaiah chapter 8 that we looked at today. But it's it's an interesting passage. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3. And before I read it, it's important to highlight that Peter, as he's writing this letter to, to, this, to these believers, he's writing to believers that found themselves in the midst of difficult times. 
It's likely that the recipients of Peter's letter were being persecuted, they were being ridiculed, they were being ostracized, they were being rejected because of their faith. They weren't fitting the mold of the society around them. And so Peter um, encourages them with these words. This is in chapter 3, and he quotes from Isaiah 8. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That's where it's quoted. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter says to them, don't fear them. Though they might be persecuting you, though they might be ostracizing you, though they might not be including you within the society, that's okay. Don't fear them. Fear the Lord. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So the question for us is, are we going to fear God or are we going to fear man? Who are we going to submit to? And as Peter encourages these believers, and these believers obviously facing much more difficult circumstances than we face today, he encouraged them, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He doesn't make this coerced call to to strict obedience. Rather, Peter speaks about this relational aspect of their faith. He says, in your heart, honor Christ the Lord Know that God is holy, but he doesn't stop there. This is where I really want to draw our attention because he continues. So when you set Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts, he goes on to say, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. When we live out our faith with authenticity and humility, It should display to the world that there's a better way. And when that occasion arises and when we have the opportunity to share, to explain what makes you different from the culture around you, friends, you have an opportunity to speak truth and love with gentleness and respect to share with them the reason for the hope that you have. So what is the hope that we have. We have to be able to answer that question. For us, we can't just sit back and point the finger at the culture and say, bad you, <laughs> you know, and think ourselves as superior. I think in some ways, when we look at the culture, it should open our eyes to our own brokenness within us. We're all broken. So, first, we have to account for our own sin. We have to know that left in sin we are hopeless we are without hope and that's a pretty dark place to be but friends there is hope God through Christ entered the world as we go through this Advent season that is what we are remembering what are we, we are reflecting upon that Christ broke through the darkness to shine the light of hope into our hearts. And the gift of faith is the gift of hope. 
Because foundational to hope is faith. It begins with faith. Hope is built upon that faith. It's the expression, it's the outward movement of our lives as a result of our faith in Christ. One of my very favorite Christmas songs is O Holy Night. And uh, I'm not going to sing it for you because that takes some pipes and I don't have those. But I love that song, not just for the music of it, but for its theology and its expression. There's some lines in the first verse that go, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Left unto our own error and sin, we are left pining. I didn't really know what pining meant, so I looked it up. Anybody know what pining means? All right, so the definition of pining. To suffer mental and physical decline, especially because of a broken heart. That's the Webster Dictionary version of pining. To be so aware of our brokenness and sin that it causes us grief. It causes us an understanding to know that because of our sin, God sent Christ in our place. And while that's, our sin leads us in this hopeless place, there is hope in Christ who has come. And that is the good news of the gospel. The message and promise of Christmas is that Christ, God incarnate, appeared. The Savior and Messiah came into the world. The Word made flesh who dwelt among us. And then our soul felt its worth. This thrill of hope rejoices within us. The weary world rejoices. And yonder breaks this new and glorious morn. There is a new life in Christ. Oh, what a blessed morn it is that the light of Christ has come. Friends, we have reason to hope. Even when all seems hopeless, or maybe especially when all seems hopeless, we have reason to hope. I'll end with the last line of our, our reading from Isaiah 8, where Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. When life seems overcome with obstacles, with turmoil, with hostility or frustration, or whatever it may be that seeks to bring us down, to pull us away, whatever tries to draw the curtains of darkness over us, wait for the Lord. Trust in him and live in hope. For the light of Christ has come. Amen. Let us join in prayer. Lord, we thank you.